You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. All right, Revelation chapter four. And if you'll bear with me, I want to read a, a section of this before we unpack it. Revelation chapter four, and we'll read part of chapter four, part of chapter five. Uh, Revelation four, uh, chapter four, verse one. It says, after this, I looked. Uh, And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit there before me. This is Apostle John speaking, the writer of the book Revelation. He said, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat on it would have the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. And surrounding the throne, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And, seated, and there were dressed, they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne came flashes of light, rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven lamps which were blazing. There were seven, these were the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Verse eight, each of the four living creatures had six wings, was covered with eyes all around. Anybody who just thinks angels look like cute naked babies that float around with wings. Uh, But here's what it says, day and night, they never stop saying this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, that the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns, the crowns upon their head, they lay before the throne and they say, you are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They circled the throne, the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they said, worthy is the lamb, this is chapter five, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped you see the picture that John sees in heaven he, it starts in chapter four and it carries over in chapter five. And, uh, and, and just to kind of set the scene here, the book of Revelation uh, describes many prophetic events. It describes what was to come. It describes uh, what was in store for the early church, but also what's ahead for all the church uh, as, as we move towards the culmination of human history and the return of Jesus. And Revelation is about many things, but the one thing it's above all about is Jesus. 
It opens the book in Revelation chapter one and it says this, this is the revelation of Jesus. What is revelation? To reveal means to unveil. It means that something is hidden, something is out of sight, something is concealed and now it is unveiled. It is revealed and it is made known and God wants to, if you want to know the heartbeat of what the Bible is, the heartbeat of God, it is that God wants you and I to know him and he sent Jesus so that we could know him. He sent Jesus to the cross to pay the price because our sins separated us from God. If you want to know why the world is in the mess it's in, it's because of the brokenness of human sin. But Jesus came to pay the price to redeem us to God and to make wrong things right. And it starts with, in fact, worship today is not just about the songs we sing, although that includes it. Worship is a heart issue. And worship begins, the first point, I've got two very simple points today. Number one is this, worship begins with a revelation of Jesus. It begins with a revelation of who Jesus is. So, so when we worship, we're actually responding. We're not starting anything, we're responding. And as I look through this story, uh, and, and there's a lot of images that are a little bit different, and uh, even sometimes I hesitate to read something like this at the beginning of a service because I think of the person that this is their very first time even stepping in a church, and I'm reading about angels covered with eyeballs. But can I just tell you, John sees a whole lot but it starts with a statement. And John is told this in Revelation 4, it says, come up here, come up here. What John needs to see, if you don't know the setting of John, he lived during the time of of heavy persecution of the church. In fact, he lived in the days of the Roman Empire where one third of the world's population was enslaved. One third. That means one out of every three people was not free. And that was the condition of the population. Not only that, but there was incredible suffering. And, and among the church, the church could not gather like we are publicly, but was persecuted. And many were thrown in prison. And many were killed and martyred for their faith in Jesus. And in the midst of what was complete and utter turmoil in the world, John needed to come up here. And I know for some of us, we just need to come up here. We need to come up to see things from God's perspective. We need to, we need to lift our eyes above the pain and the worry and the, the problems of and listen, some of us have some issues with Thanksgiving this week. With some, we got some people we're going to meet. We haven't seen in a whole year. And I know we might get into some conversations, but we need to come up here. We need, to, we need to see what God wants us to see. We need to see that that person who's difficult in your life is somebody that Jesus died for, that he loves, that maybe instead of fighting them, you pray for them. Oh, I didn't plan on preaching that, but that's good. Because John had to come up here and here's what he was told. I'm going to show you things that are coming after this. And what does he see? He sees a throne. In fact, if you look through the Bible, there's several moments where people see pictures and, and, and a vision of heaven. And, and one of the most common threads through it, in fact, if you compare them, the one thing that I see in just about every one of those cases is the presence of the throne. In fact, Isaiah, 700 years before this, who would prophesy the coming of Jesus the first time that we're going to celebrate with Christmas this season, that, that as Jesus was born in Bethlehem and, 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 and he would then grow and suffer and die on the cross, that Isaiah saw that 700 years before the coming of Jesus, and yet 
He also saw a throne, and the throne that was there in heaven in the days of Isaiah was still there in place when John needed to see it 700 years later. And can I help somebody today? It's still there. 2,000 years after that, the throne hasn't moved. The throne has outlasted people, presidents, kings, governments, kingdoms. It's it's outlasted every philosophy and religious idea of man because there's still somebody on the throne. And you need to remember that. I need to remember that. In moments where my life is shaken, in moments where I don't know what to do, I remember there's still one on the throne. That when we, and, and in the presence before the throne, yes, we see the angels and we see that, but it actually says, first he says, I saw something in front of it like a sea of glass. Well, how is water like a sea of glass? It's because there is no shaking or waves or tumult, but there's perfect peace before the throne. God isn't shaken, but the nations rage. The nations fight the things. And even as the church, we can get discouraged because we go, oh man, it looks like the world's going crazy. And in many ways it is, and it always has without God. But there's still the presence of peace because there's still one on the throne. And our confidence and peace has to come from the one who's there on that throne. Worship, as they begin to worship, it says the angels cry out and, and then the elders respond. They cast their crowns and they cry out and, and then it, it gets, it just keeps, you see this cascading effect and they begin to say, worthy is the lamb. They, they begin to worship. They begin to sing and cry out, not because somebody came along and said, here's what you should do in heaven. You know, if you've ever been in church long enough, especially depending on your background, you know, uh, my, my family on one side came from a background where, you know, th- four or five times during the service, we were told, okay, now kneel, now stand, now rise, now sit, now kneel. And you kind of go through the, you don't even know why you're doing any of it. But nobody's even telling them to respond this way. But from the, at the heart level, they're responding because they're seeing the one on the throne. And they're responding because he's worthy. Worship actually starts with seeing Jesus. I said, in the Gospels, it says this, Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17, when the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them, they saw him, verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped. Now, this is Jesus, not just, this is Jesus after the cross. This is Jesus as he's risen from the empty tomb. This is Jesus preparing to ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father at that throne. But Jesus, they see him, the resurrected king. In the midst of all their confusion and all their questions, they see him and they begin to worship. Some doubt it. There's always going to be some people that miss it. There's always going to be some people that don't respond to what they see. And maybe it's because they're looking in the wrong place. But when the disciples saw him, they worshiped. It was their response to what they saw. And if, if I can do anything today to encourage and inspire worship in our church, because I believe we should be a worshiping people, a worshiping church, because of who he is and what he has done. And there's some things that happen in our life when we begin to live with that mindset and that heart of worship towards God. See, in the midst of the throne, in Revelation 5, verse 6, John saw something. It says this, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. 
Some translations say in the midst of the throne, but I like this way. It says this, at the center, because worship is always fundamentally about who and what is at the center of our lives. When he's at the center, something else is, and I talked about that a few weeks ago. When he's at the center, things that fear loses its place, shame loses its place, the things that are competing for his attention lose their place. And they cry out, the angels cry out around this throne in the presence of the lamb that they now see, and they sing, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you see their response? Do you see what the elders are doing? They're casting their crowns. Every one of them are provoked. What are they provoked by? Well, I believe it's not just what they see. It's the presence of the lamb. It's the presence of God. Because if you want to know what makes heaven, heaven, it's not just that we have peace unending. It's not just that we're reunited with our loved ones who've gone before us in Christ. See, John in this moment has to see that there's a veil that's been lifted. In fact, we don't always recognize because we go about our lives every Every day, And I know as believers in Jesus, we know that heaven is a real place and we know that it's real, but we live our lives often as if eternity is distant. That God himself is distant. When we picture God, we picture him a billion trillion miles away instead of Emmanuel, God with us. And here's what I want us to catch today because worship is our response to the presence of of the one who's not distant, but he's close. Who's not far, but he's near. What makes heaven, heaven is the presence of the one on the throne. What makes heaven, heaven is the presence. In fact, what makes hell, hell is the separation from the presence of God. And I want us to recognize that because as the church, we can miss the value and importance of his presence. I, I, I love to go to movies. Anybody else like movies besides me? And, and, you know, I'll have, oftentimes, I'll try to tell about a movie I just watched and how much I enjoyed it. Especially, let's say there was something funny in the movie and I'm trying to tell the joke. And there, I can tell that somebody's not getting the importance of how funny that joke was from the movie. You ever tell that story? Like, you're like, you just, and what do you say? You just had to be there. You just had to be there. I heard Cassie, my mother-in-law, between first and second service one time, there was something I said. I, it doesn't happen often, but I said something that was funny that service. She was, she was telling people as they came in, you got to hear this. Well, maybe you won't tell at second service, but you had to be there at first. It was funny. But you had to be there. You ever try to communicate that to somebody? You had to be there. Well, there's something different. If I just describe a movie, I can tell you the main plot points. I can describe the main characters. I can tell you some details about it. But there's something about being in the room. There's something about having the lights get dark and the screen turn on and get past the 45 commercials and smell the popcorn. Come on, somebody. And you experience it. Because you've entered into the experience. You've entered into the room. You've entered into the space. And there's something about entering into the presence of God that's very different than just talking about God. There's something different about entering into the presence of God. In fact, worship, entering into worship, is not about entering into a service or a song moment. It's about entering into his presence experientially. If I could have you do this, point number two is before he put it up. I think it's a good question after, let's say, after church to ask ourselves, what did I get out of today? 
What did I learn? What did I hear? What did I, how can I apply this? But you know, I've got a better question for you and it's point two. Why don't we ask ourselves, have I entered in? Rather than say, did I get something? Did I learn something? How can I apply something? That's good, but there's something even better. It's did I enter in? Because all of us are invited. And and if you don't know what I mean by that, I want to unpack that today. Because entering in, see, when I go to a service or I'm in this time of, of, of worshiping and praising and singing about the king, more importantly, worshiping face to face, but singing to the king. When I'm in those moments, it's not about what I receive only. It's actually more importantly about am I entering in? Because the invitation is for all of us to enter in to experience his love, his presence, his goodness for ourselves. I gave you this last week, Mark chapter 12. Uh, One of the scribes, one of the religious people comes to Jesus and he says, you know, what's the greatest of the commandments? What's the first commandment? Jesus responds, verse 29. He says, the first of all is this, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. I shared that last week. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. So, so everything you can summarize and hang all of the commandments, all of Jesus said, you can hang all the law and the prophets on these two things, loving God with all your heart, all your soul, mind, and strength. Worship starts with the heart. It, it starts with the heart because if it starts with just our mind, we can love the Lord with all of our mind, but if it doesn't start at the heart, I'm analyzing and critiquing and thinking about it. And I don't know about you, but my mind can wander real easy. Nobody else. Okay. It's just me, just me and Derek. We, it's just the two of us. Like my, my mind can wander as I'm getting distracted and thinking about, but when I'm beholding him, that's why it starts with the heart. The heart is what steers the course. It's what sets the focus. It's what turns the attention. And when I start with the heart, and then love him with my soul, mind, and strength. Your soul is your mind, your will, your emotions. Can I just tell you, some of us are waiting to worship until we feel like it. But if you're waiting to feel it, waiting to feel like it, you're allowing your soul, your feelings, your emotions to lead instead of the heart. Jesus one day is having a conversation with the woman at the well, and he sits down by this well, and the woman comes to draw water, and as she comes to the well, she, he, he says, give me something to drink. And she says, I, I have, you have nothing to draw with, sir. And then he turns the conversation because he's really after something. He's not interested really in a cup of water. He's interested in her encountering the love of God. And he says to this woman, he says, if you actually knew who was asking you for water, you would ask him for some. Because what I've got is actually greater than the water you're drawing from the well. It's greater than the most purified, distilled, zero particulate water you can find. He says, I've got living water. She goes, oh, I I want some of that water. And he says, go and call your husband. And she says, sir, I don't have a husband. He says, you said rightly, you don't have a husband. You've actually had five husbands and and, and now you're with somebody else and, and, and he's 
pointing this out for a reason. He's saying this not to see, in, in, if you've been in a religious environment, sometimes we, we've been in an environment where we've had things pointed out to shame or tear down. Jesus points out to heal because he points to the greatest need of this woman's life. He says, I've got living water, but you're trying to draw from the wrong well. You're going from relationship to relationship, trying to find that hope, find that peace, find that fulfillment, find life, but you're only gonna find it in me. And, and, and immediately, but here's what, what I love in this story, and you, some of you have heard me share this story before, but I love this story because it shows human nature. Like the moment he gets personal, she gets religious. He starts talking about some heart issues. She goes, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. Let's talk about what Twitter is talking about. If you know the story, she then asks him, she says, well, I'm a Samaritan and you're with the Jews and, and here's what the debate is. Where do we worship God? Because the Samaritans, we have a mountain and we go to worship God there and you worship God at a temple and she gets, she def- I, I believe she's deflecting personally. It's like, well, let's not talk about my issue. Let's, let's debate. It's funny how people will start religious arguments about what their denomination teaches and what their church taught and, and different philosophies and ideas instead of allowing God to change them at the heart level. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus cuts right through that and he says, listen, the hour is coming and now is where they that worship will worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It means you're going to experience, see the, the mountain that you would go to and the temple, which was good and it was a part of the covenant of God, but all of that was a shadow and a type and preparing for something real. And Jesus said, you're now gonna worship in spirit and in truth, in reality, not only in reality and sincerity, but in real experience. That we're not just going to talk about a God who's a million miles away and distant, but you're going to encounter him. What's he saying? You're going to enter in. You're going to enter in. Worship starts at the heart level. Isaiah 29, 13 describes the sad state of the religious heart. Therefore, the Lord said, as much as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, they're singing the songs, they're praying the prayers, they're doing all of the external outward things. And when I say religious, I know religion means a lot of things to a lot of different people. I mean it in the sense that the things we do for God without God. Like I'm doing it because I'm supposed to. I'm doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because I think that's what a good Christian does, but there's no heart connection to the God who created and loved me. And here's what he says, but their hearts are removed far. God's after our heart. He's not after our religious efforts and our religious activity. He's after something deep at the heart level. See, I can think, my wife's here in the front and, you know, I can think, because here's what they're doing. They're singing, you know, they're singing the song, God, I love you. <laughs> but their heart is far. They, they wore the, the religious facade, but there was something deep in the heart level. And, and I can have a, 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 an outward feeling like, you know, I, I love my wife. I, I talk to people all the time. I counsel people. I, I talk to people all the time and say, well, yeah, I, I love my wife. Have you told her? Somebody just got jabbed. Have you, have you shown it? Have you said it? Has it come from the heart? Or are you just think, well, she knows. 
My husband knows I love him. My, sp- my kids know I love them. Do you tell them? Do you spend time? Because kids spell love, T-I-M-E. And so, so, so when we look at this, we can do the same in our relationship with God. We go, well, I sing the song. Yeah, I love him. I show up. I'm... But I want to challenge us because God's after the heart. Because remember last week, if he has the heart, he has everything. The heart is the starting point. It's the place of real transformation. And you know what I found? Here's, here's, my, here's the way I'm wired. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of good with a great book, Five Love Languages, where you learn what, you know, what your love language is and how you receive love. And I think that's good. But here's what we tend to do, because let's just be honest, we're self-centered by nature without Jesus. Three of us agree with that. Okay. Uh, So so you never have to teach your kids to be self-centered when they're little. You never have to teach them to, you know, mine. Like that's just, it's mine. <laughs> and, and so there's that, that, that wire. To, so we tend to look at other people through the lens of what we want. And so I can think I'm loving my spouse. I'm loving my wife because of what I want. But instead of recognizing, do you know what worship is? It's not even about what I receive from God. And listen, God wants to bless you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to answer prayer. He wants to do all these things and he can, he will. But there's something different between seeing what God can do and knowing his heart and responding in worship. You see this from the Old Testament to the New. In the Old Testament, Israel saw the ways of God. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw the supernatural miracles that were undeniable. This is God. But just like any of us, when we've seen God work in an area, but we don't connect at the heart level, we quickly forget about it, the first problem or the first storm or the first thing that doesn't go our way. I'm talking about the second service people, not you. I mean, that's just me. Like, I can get that way. And Israel, they run into their first problem right after the Red Sea, and they're like, we have no water. And they start complaining and grumbling, and, and they miss it. But Moses goes to God because he was a worshiper. Jesus feeds the 5,000. But if I look at the story of Jesus dying on the cross, the 5,000, the crowd that loved the loaves and loved the fish and experienced the miracle didn't show up at the cross. Even his closest disciples who walked with him, who talked with him, only John and a few others were there at the cross. Why? Because sometimes it's, it's one thing to see the hand of God, but what keeps you strong in your faith, what keeps you close to God is a heart surrendered to Jesus, a heart of worship that sees him. Okay. Isaiah, uh, Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 84.10 says, for a day in your courts, David said this, David was a warrior and a worshiper. He could kill giants like Goliath one day and be dancing and celebrating the king the next day, celebrating God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the doorkeeper in a, in a culture of circumcision, they had a job. Make sure that they were Jewish and they were circumcised when they entered the house. Thankfully, we don't, our greeter team doesn't have to do that. <laughs> Can I just tell you, it's like the worst job. <laughs> it's just real. It's... David says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather have the lowest place, but be close to him. Because I, I'd rather be in his courts, in his house, 
than anywhere else, than spend a thousand anywhere else. Why? For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He gives light and he gives surrounds it with protection. The Lord will give grace and glory and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. David recognized it because he was a worshiper. He was a worshiper. Psalm 42, five, but even as a worshiper, there were moments where David and many of the psalmists, as they write, they worship to God. Some days they didn't feel it. Some days they were preoccupied with what they were feeling and what they were seeing and where their heart was. And, and, and we all have moments like that. But you know what David said? He said, why are you cast down my soul? Have you ever just felt God's presence and you've been excited and you've been joyful and you've had one moment where we're like, let's, char- let's charge hell with a water pistol. Let's do it. And then Monday morning comes around and we're like, oh God, where are you? So why are you cast down my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? He's talking to himself. If you don't realize this, psychologists say that most of what we hear out of our own mouths about ourselves is usually negative. What if you started changing the narrative a little bit and you started challenging yourself? What did pastors teach on today? Talk to ourselves. <laughs> no, no, listen. God wants you. God wants me. Sometimes we've got to stir. Somebody, sometimes you don't have somebody else to come alongside you. I love the encouragers in the room. We got some encouragers. We got some people that come alongside you. I think of Nick. He's an encourager. He was, those of you who don't know Nick, he was at the welcome home banner as you walked in. Like, like somebody like that, they're encouraging you. They put their arm around you. They're like, I'm praying for you. I'm with you. And, and their encouragers are good, but sometimes you don't have an encourager around and you got to tell yourself to get out of the dumps. Why are you downcast? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. I shall yet praise him. Mary said this, my soul magnifies the Lord. Your soul, your, your heart, your mind, your life, the, the part of you that nobody else can see, but, but it's happening internally, that part of you functions like a telescope. When I, when I bought a telescope for my kids years ago, I, I bought it for them way too young. They were like three years old, and so most of it got broken. But I remember when I bought it, the purpose of it was to show them things that were distant. I wanted them to see the stars and the planets and the moon, and it magnified. Listen, they looked through the telescope, and what they saw didn't get any bigger, but it was magnified in their sight. And what your soul is set on, what your heart is set on, what your mind is preoccupied with, you will magnify. You will make bigger in your own view. That's why worship is so important because our soul magnifies God. One last story, because I believe, uh, I, I actually had a third point, I forgot that. Number three, you're free to enter. I wanna read this story with you because I believe that the biggest thing that keeps people from worshiping, and there's a lot of things that keep, keep people, and I, I, you know, obviously our heart, our, our affections, our you know, I think sometimes even I look at this, the, the view of heaven that John has and what are the elders, the leaders, the, the, and there's, there's a lot that represents, but the 24 elders, they cast their crowns. They humble themselves. It's actually impossible to live a life of worship and still walk in pride. I think sometimes we, we hesitate to worship because there's something deep down that we want it. We want the attention. We want to be worshiped. We want to be known. We want to be celebrated. And it's hard for us to let him be the center. But, but, but even if that's not the case, 
Sometimes when we go to worship and we go to sing and we go to pray, I know that for the most of us, the vast majority of us, the one thing the enemy uses like a club to bludgeon us, to to keep us from worshiping, to keep us from celebrating is the weapon of shame. Because we feel like we can't. We feel like we're not welcome. We feel like we're not worthy. We start to worship and we're thinking about all the things we had done. We're thinking about how five minutes before on the way to church, we were arguing on the, in the car. None of you, that's a, okay. That's second service, yeah. So we just, you're all like, no, we were perfectly all in a great mood because we came, rose up early this morning. Like we have a rule in our family. It's an unspoken rule, but it's a rule. Don't talk to mom and dad until we've had our coffee. <laughs> I need Jesus and I need coffee. But I believe that shame is a weapon that the enemy uses to keep us from worship, to focus on our own failure and our own brokenness instead of focusing on the goodness and grace of God. Hebrews ten nineteen says, therefore, brethren, having boldness, See, you, number, point three, if I didn't give it to you, I think I did. You're free to enter. Like if I look at the key difference, like if, I, I told you, if I, if I were to compare Old and New Testament, the pictures of heaven, there's several things that are similar and there's also some things that are different. One thing that's similar is there's a presence of a throne. Jason and the team, if you want to get ready, there's a presence of a throne. But you know, one thing, and, and it was probably the most strange thing in the entire thing I read to you, from Revelation is the angels. There were some angels that they're called living creatures because I don't know what else you call them. They're, they're full of eyes. But if you look at the Old Testament's depiction of angels in the presence of God, some of them have their eyes covered because of the holiness of God. They've got their eyes covered. They're, they're, they're obstructing their view because they can't look at him in his glory. And if you look at the difference between the old and the new, in fact, in the Old Testament, when people would worship, they didn't worship like we're doing today. They would be a high priest. They would bring an offering and they would bring it to the high priest to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then the high priest once a year would go through a veil that separated man from God. They would go through the veil and they would offer the blood of that sacrifice. And the high priest had to, this is true, the high priest had bells on their garment. And those bells were to represent the praise and the worship and the joy and the gladness of God as, as they would move, as they would walk. But they were also had a practical purpose because of the high priest was compromised going into the holy of holy place through the veil, he could die. And they literally had a rope tied to his ankle because nobody else could go in. Only one was allowed once a year to go in. There was, and the reason for all of that was so that Israel would know the holiness of God. But there's a difference between the Old Testament and the old experience and the new. And it's what Jesus told that woman about. That the Father is looking for worshipers who are going to worship in spirit and in truth. And the veil, if you don't know the story, Jesus died on the cross and that very veil that, that the high priest would walk through was ripped by God, <laughs> was ripped top to bottom. No man could do it. 
And God was letting them know, letting us know, the way into my presence is open through Jesus. And as the writer of Hebrews remembers that, because something changed in heaven. In the old, they had their eyes covered. In the new, they're full of eyes. (laughs) But what's the point? What we couldn't behold because of sin and shame, Jesus tore the veil so that we could come boldly. Every one of us, the person who's been in church their whole lives and the person that's been here for the very first time that says, God, I need you. And by the way, church doesn't save us. Religion can't save us. Only Jesus can. Jesus paid the price. He tore the veil. Not so that one person once a year could go in, but so that all of us could enter in. All of us could enter in. And he says we can have boldness. Do you have boldness in your relationship with God? Do you have boldness to be able to come in prayer? Do you have boldness to worship and sing? Do you have boldness to approach the throne of God in your heart and in your life? Well, if you don't have boldness, I I believe part of why, at least in my own life, why has been because of moments where I've allowed shame to keep me from seeing the goodness and grace of God. And here's why we can have boldness, if we can keep that on the screen for just a moment. Having boldness to enter the holiest. You're free to enter. You're free to enter in. And here's why. Because of the blood of Jesus. We're free to be saved. We're free to be made whole. We're free to be forgiven. We can enter because of the holiest, into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. In a few moments, we're gonna worship together. But before we do that, I believe that today is a day to let go of shame for some of us. Because shame is functioning like a blinder. We don't want to look at him. We want to look away. We don't feel worthy. We don't realize that what he's done made us right with God. And when we repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus, here's what he does. He doesn't keep a record. He doesn't keep a list. Like, you ever get in an argument with somebody and they bring up all the stuff you did? Like, they got the really good at remembering? Bible says he cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. I'm going to need to open a marriage counseling session for some. But but he he forgives. He sets free. This beautiful story of worship in the Bible. I I don't have time to share it in detail or have us read it, but I want to tell you what happens. Jesus is invited by one of the religious crowd. His name is Simon invites him to his house and he makes him dinner and he has him over and this man has Jesus over not because he believes or follows Jesus but because he's he's wanting to find out is this guy the real deal he invites Jesus over and he doesn't do any of the customary things in the day where where if a guest in that culture came to the house they would wash their feet they would give them oil to anoint their head. They would, they would do certain things to, to make them feel at home. None of that happens. Jesus sits at the table, and while he's there with Simon, a woman comes to the door, and here's how she's described. 
a woman who is a sinner. That's all it says. Some scholars think it's Mary who had, it says, had seven demons cast out of her. Like that, that's, a, that's, that's a testimony. She had a messy history. But regardless if it was, it says it was a woman who was a sinner. She comes to Jesus and she brings something. She brings an offering, her worship. And it was an alabaster flask of oil that was worth a year's wages. And she broke it. It was sealed. In other words, what she offered, she began to pour out this alabaster flask to anoint his head. Simon, the religious leader, he didn't offer anything for for Jesus, but this woman who was a sinner came and poured it out upon Jesus and she's weeping and her tears are falling on his feet and she's, as, as they're falling on his feet, she's wiping and drying them with her hair and it's just this whole scene and Simon sits back and goes, if Jesus was really a prophet, if he was really who he says he is, he wouldn't let this woman who's a sinner touch him. It's interesting how when you stop worshiping, you start criticizing. When the church loses its view of the lamb in the center of the throne, we become critics and judges instead of lovers of God and lovers of people. And he says, if Jesus knew who this woman was, she poured out what cost her and she could not put it back. The alabaster flask was broken to pour out its contents upon Jesus. And then Jesus tells a story to this man. I'm almost done, but here's what he says. Because he knows what's in the heart of this Simon. He knows what's in our heart. And he says to him, he says, let me ask you a question. If there were two people who owed two different debts, 150, one 1,000, and the creditor who they owed their debts to forgave them both, which one do you think would love him more? The one who owed 50 or the one who owed 1,000? And the man who's sitting there at the table thinks, well, probably the one who owed 1,000 because it was a debt he knew he could not repay. Jesus' response is this. He says, the one who's forgiven much loves much. So no matter what your story is, This woman's history was messy, but it didn't keep her from approaching Jesus. In fact, the story ends with Jesus saying to her, your sins are forgiven. I know everybody else around you is defining you by your worst moments because that's what people do, but that's not what God does. She comes at the feet of Jesus and she pours out her worship and maybe today it's time to let go of shame. Let go of what didn't work out where you're disappointed and where you're hurt and and lay it at the feet of Jesus. I'm asking you this, if you'd stand to your feet. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.